Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Greetings, Mr. Greg Yagi. I have come to place myself in apprenticeship to you. I wish to learn origami. Origami take much patience, little jumping flea. Origami take discipline. First, you learn to do a simple task. Okay, like what? Fold this paper once, and then again. Then stuff in envelope. Then do all over, ten thousand times. What does the paper say? Bill Curry for Senior Prefect of Kyoto in 2014. Oh, is he running for that? No, but first you must learn to surrender self to task that has no meaning. Mr. Gregiyagi, I've been studying with you for two years now, and all I've done so far is fold paper. Yes, hopping bedbug. Yesterday, you fold a vampire biting Pierce Morgan. Gregiyagi never seen anything so beautiful. But I think I'm ready to move on. I think I'm ready to learn origami. That is origami. Origami is only fold. Really? That's it. I thought it was some sort of cool fighting technique, like where you fly through the air and you rip people's eyeballs out. No, tiny defecating spider. Only fold. Okay. Um. Can I ask you something else? Why do you talk that way? You're not Asian. Yeah, I'm from Allentown, Pennsylvania, but people don't take you seriously in this field if you don't sound authentic. Today on the show, the complex world of origami, an art form with vast implications for biology, engineering, and physics. And now he folded Viva paper towels into a sculpture of the Brawny Man, Colin McEnroe. Yes, well, the Brawny Man is very important to me for reasons that I prefer not to disclose at this time. Um, I'll be honest. When uh, Kion Wolf first came to us and said, "Let's do a whole show about origami," I said, "Really? About or- like a whole show? Like not a twenty-minute segment?" Uh, boy, was I a fool. Uh, the more that I got to understand this, the more I realized that an hour is not going to be sufficient to talk about everything that we're going to talk about. By the end of the show, you'll be hearing, and and I hope believing and understanding uh, that principles of origami can be used to create. A robot that's essentially a flat sheet of material that it's that can assemble itself, given a certain signal, uh, assemble itself into different, almost any kind of form. It can turn itself into a plane or a boat. Or it, it that this is possible, and that the, the crudest prototypes of that uh, are already being done. Anyway, that's way, way, way at the end of the show. We've got a long way to travel before we get there. But yeah, you will be hearing about all kinds of applications in, in engineering, medicine. Um, space technology. Uh, You'll hear all about that. Um, But first we have to figure out what origami is because the other part of this story and and the one that um, took me the longest to learn is the incredible evolution of this art form. Uh, And the most incredible thing about it to me anyway, and I promise I will stop babbling in just a second, uh, is the way it kind of has evolved at a rapid pace. It it really has had its uh, infancy, its childhood, its adolescence, uh, and its adult period in the space of, of just a couple of human lifetimes. Um, so, I mean, not that it's that young. It's older than that. But w- what's happened to it as an art uh, is is pretty amazing. And I think a lot of it's happened in a very short time. Anyway, 
As promised, I will now stop babbling and uh, introduce the first of our guests, Robert J. Lang. Uh, He is one of the world's leading masters of the art uh, and mathematics of origami. He joins us from KQED uh, in San Francisco. Um, Robert Lang, welcome to the show. Um, You actually gave up a a career in physics. I think you've got a couple of degrees from Caltech. Um, I don't know if it's fair to say you gave up the career in physics because it's still there, but you turned your attention uh, instead uh, of conventional uh, topics in physics, you turned your attention to origami. Uh, tell us why. The driver for switching was that I wanted to write a book that basically told other people how to design using the mathematical and geometric techniques that I had come up with over the last 10 or 15 years to design. And so I was faced with this choice. Do I continue down the path of doing lasers and optoelectronics, which is what I had been doing, or do I write this book to to expand the, the knowledge of origami. And I kind of decided there are plenty of great opto engineers out there who could do anything that I could do and more. But I felt like that book was important. And so that was the uh, impetus that for me making the big switch. That was 12 years ago, and, and I've never looked back. How did you and origami find each other? And we're going to, as we go along, talk about a lot of people in, in the field, fields of science and, and medicine and technology who have, who have now discovered origami. But how, how did you and origami discover each other? Origami came to me when I was six through a book. Mm. I acquired a book that had some instructions for a couple of the simple traditional figures in it. And I thought, oh, this was fun. And it was really nice that all I needed was paper. I didn't need to buy um, kits for a model. I didn't need tools. I just needed paper in my hands. And so I made those few things over and over and over. My parents saw this. And whether they saw my interest or they were sick of seeing the same four things over and over and over. They bought me more books. Mm. So they fed my addiction. And uh, that began a lifelong love affair with folding. Um, maybe we need to define our terms. I mean, I think people, you know, if they haven't seen uh, the, the independent lens documentary that you're in, if they haven't encountered some of the, uh, the more elaborate and modern versions of origami, if they have any image in their mind, it's a paper swan. Uh, but I don't even know if they know how you get to the paper swan. So maybe we can just sort of start there. There are base, There's a basic set of rules for origami, right? Well, there's different customs in origami for, for what the – I think rules is a little bit too strong. Customs is a better name. Okay. The most common style of folding uses one uncut square of paper. So, and, and the traditional swan, the traditional crane, and so forth are all folded in that style. Ancient Japanese origami varied from that. Sometimes they used multiple sheets. Sometimes they used different shapes. Sometimes they used cuts. But uh, it's most common, even nowadays, to start from a square, and all you're doing is folding. And so that sounds like it would be kind of limiting, and in some ways it is. But watching the documentary, seeing what people make that way, uh, you could do a better job than I uh, of explaining it. How, how elaborate does this get, this art of folding just one sheet of paper? Well, it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. that modern origami, the most complex origami, will contain thousands of folds. And some of them, some of the pieces take tens of hours of solid folding and can only be folded by by a master. In many cases, to you have to bring together hundreds of folds happening all at once. You can't do them in order. You have to make them all happen at once. And the paper gets incredibly convoluted in the act of folding. So it's really come a long way. The, the most complex modern designs are maybe two orders of magnitude more complicated and by any 
sort of uh, a mathematical measure than the traditional swan or bird and, and the like. So there's a familiar fact pattern uh, here that, that we, we see in a lot of different disciplines and areas, which is you take something familiar, something maybe even a little bit old, and bomb it with computer technology. And that's one of the things that's happened here. And it's part of your role, right, is to somehow or other marry this you know, relatively old but not incredibly ancient uh, art of origami uh, with computer technology. What, what happens when those two things meet? Well, I and, and several other people have brought computers into it, but the, the story, the inflection point in origami was not bombing with computer technology. It actually happened 10 years earlier, and it was, I'd say, bombing with mathematical ideas or geometric understanding um, that the, all of the roots of computer technology, all of the roots that feed into today's computer-designed origami were actually um, written down on, on pencil, with pencil and paper. They were mathematical ideas that people developed in the 90s. And so the ideas, the mathematics came first. And then as things progressed, I and, and others wrote computer programs that implemented those mathematical ideas. But it's, it's important to realize that the computers aren't necessary, that there are many phenomenal origami artists doing incredibly complex work who don't use computers to create the patterns. They might use a computer as a sketch pad to write down their ideas, but, but they're using their minds to do the design, to follow all of the mathematical rules that are necessary to put together a very complex set of arms and legs and so forth to make, a, a for example, a squid attacking a full-rigged sailing ship. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the things that I saw were amazing. Uh, and, and, I mean, uh, an unbelievably elaborate dragon, uh, uh, a neoclassical sculpture, basically, are, once again, just done that way. Um, but that's also uh, one of the fascinations for me here was, okay, so that's origami's representational period. And it turns out that you can really do almost any representational thing that you could do with another three-dimensional art, like sculpture. You you could conventional sculpture. You, you can make almost anything that way. But it seems as though, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, it seems as though in a very short time, origami has reached a representational peak and then also started to be um, abstract, modern, postmodern, all kind of, you know, in, in a matter of decades. It definitely has radiated out in the way that you just described, abstract, minimalist, modern, postmodern, purely geometric, periodic things that look like crumpling, things that include techniques of crumpling. I wouldn't say the representational folding has reached a peak yet. That I, what I see is that the upward trajectory of representational folding continues, but it's been joined by these other avenues. And particularly in the geometric and abstract area, there I think we are now seeing things that can only be done by computer that require computational algorithms to figure out where the creases need to go. Well, we look towards its outward horizon, but let's also take a look back over our shoulders. There is sort of a a father of origami, right? Akira Yoshizawa. Tell us who he was. That's right. Akira Yoshizawa is regarded as the, the father of origami. He was a Japanese artist. He was a, uh, he was a peasant, a metal worker, who uh, was born in 1911. He took up origami, and it became his passion. He quit his job to devote his life entirely to origami and developed new techniques. He developed 
tens of thousands of new origami figures, and he developed a language for communication of origami, kind of the system of, of dotted lines, dashed lines, and arrows that people all over the world today now use to communicate how to fold an origami shape. And while he was certainly not the only person in Japan who was creating new origami, his work was was probably the most inspiring. It launched origami interests in, in the West. Um, his work was exhibited in the West starting in the 1950s in uh, the Netherlands. And so even though there are multiple roots of paper folding, we find 100-year-old paper folding in Europe, if we look at the modern art today, almost everyone's intellectual ancestry traces back to Yoshizawa. And it seems as though, and again, Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about this. It seems as though you can draw something of a straight line from him to modern conceptual art, too, even though there are works of his that are preserved and, and can be exhibited. Uh, on the, uh, at the same time, you have a, an, uh, an art idea that, it, that starts as a concept and can be preserved as a concept, right? If you know what the folds are supposed to be, um, obviously there's something to be said for being a master folder, for having uh, the fingers, the muscle memory, everything that it takes uh, to realize something like this. But to some degree or, or another, origami is an idea that could be replicated over and over. It can be replicated, but rarely exactly. Mm-hmm. And the best analogy I've found for this this dichotomy in the world of origami is, exists in the world of music, that you have the art of composition and the art of performance. Mm-hmm. And the composition is an idea, and it can be described imperfectly or incompletely by writing down in music, writing down musical notes with markings of of loudness and softness and speed and so forth. But that really doesn't capture the whole art of a musical composition. It's fully rendered when someone actually performs it. And then even though two or three different performers could perform the same piece, it's not going to be identical. And every performer puts their own stamp on it. And so we see that as well in origami. We might try to capture the design of an origami piece in a series of step-by-step diagrams, but that that doesn't include everything that you'll see in the finished work. And different origami artists, when they fold someone's composition, will render it differently in, and artistically in different ways. So that's a great point. It's not pure concept the way, say, Saul Lewitt is. You know, Saul Lewitt's conceptual art basically is a design which he expects technicians to be able to execute, uh, maybe even in more than one location. Uh, But it'll be basically the same. You're saying that that really isn't true, that there just is a human organic quality to bringing something like that, Uh, just the sweat of your fingers bringing something like that uh, into reality makes it different from any one that anybody else did or even another one that you did trying to do it just this just the same way that's the case with the vast majority of origami you know th- and there's exceptions to every rule so i'm i'm sure one of my or- origami friends is going to point out that they've <laughs> created some design that someone can reproduce exactly um, but most origami is exactly what you just described um, i did have uh, one one person several years ago I talked to, who, an artist who was interested in developing, a, they wanted a folding plan for a, a crumpled paper wad, but they wanted to be able to make identical crumpled paper wads because, you know, if you crumple up a sheet of paper, everyone looks different. And right. so there they were actually striving for, uh, to, to achieve this, this uh, identical, uh, identical from one rendering to the next. But I think it's pretty rare. 
Uh, Robert J. Lang, you have fans. Uh, one of them, I think, is calling right now from Naugatuck. This is Virginia. She's on the air. Hi, Virginia. Hi. I am really just so excited that Mr. Lang is on there. <laughs> um, I started doing origami like 50 years ago, and when my children were little, in the 90s, they were using Mr. Lang's and Mr. Montrell's books, and I just... It was so good for them. It was so good for their brain. It it uh, it was just incredible. We actually had a paper based economy. Like you could earn paper by. <laughs> um, we just, I just I, seriously, you know, I mean, the kids would when they would calm to calm down, they'd be like folding origami. So uh, your books were wonderful. Your books are wonderful. I keep looking at your your new one, the uh, Design Secrets. That's that's your newest book. It's not the newest, but it's. Perhaps the one I'm the most proud of. <laughs> I'm the most impressed. <laughs> I'm so impressed with it. And, um, you know, I just sort of feel like I should buy it for myself, but I know my kids would steal it. I'm impressed uh, that you can get your kids to calm down by doing origami. Oh, no, my children are now well, you did, uh, in yeah. their late 20s. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, my kid went to a stressful, uh, he had a stressful event at school, and he went home, and he made this multi-faceted zebra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I even even in their late twenties, origami can still calm them down. Oh, they do. When my son my son's waiting in the airport, he you know gets something on the internet and he'll fold something. Or it, I just just wanted to say I just just to praise you. All right. Well, that's <laughs> and a, to thank you. Well, thank and my you. My children, they've passed it on to other people. Well, that is great, and thank you so much for your call, Virginia. It's you know I mean I I've read about and watched documentaries about and heard about all kinds of applications, and we're going to be talking about a lot of them today, Robert J. Lang. But I hadn't really thought about the sort of psychotherapy uh, or, or sort of meditative calming aspect of this, but, but it, it, it does sort of, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's true. It's just that that thing about making a thousand cranes, you get your wish. Mm-hmm. The only problem with that is that after 800 cranes, you really just wish you were done. <laughs> I, didn't even, I, didn't, I didn't know that was a truism. Uh, maybe you can say something about that, uh, Robert. Well, the the um, the idea of making a thousand cranes to get a wish is is very old in Japan, and it uh, I think it, it achieved more fame because of the st- story of Sadako Sasaki, the young woman um, who was uh, afflicted by uh, cancer as a result of the Hiroshima bombing, and and folded a thousand cranes. Um, so people still do that, but the the concept has broadened out to um, to be a a general evidence of luck. So one of the things, luck and good fortune and 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 positive things going forward. So one of the things we we see a lot of is that uh, young couples, especially if there's a, there's roots in Japanese culture, will fold a thousand cranes as as leading up to the wedding and then have them arranged in sort of a decorative display as kind of a tangible evidence of, of their commitment and perhaps compatibility. We're going to take a break in just a second here, but one question that I wanted to ask you about was, um, and I, guess, I suppose this is sort of enters, enters us into the less, less sublime uh, world of, of <laughs> business, uh, but um, questions about sort of who, who owns origami, who owns an origami idea, maybe the difficulty of copywriting such an idea. I, can't, I even encountered this today. I was thinking about the movie Blade Runner, where the character played by Edward James Olmos uh, seems to communicate with various characters by leaving certain origami figures uh, in, in places. And, and I, I, was, I was Googling that, and I came upon a website uh, where some, which some guy had started, where basically what he does is 
either sell the or the Blade Runner origami to people who want them, or or at least have the designs up there so people can can make their own Edward James Olmos, um, uh, you know, paper unicorn from Blade Runner. But it raises an interesting question, which is, I mean, if these things are concepts, who does this come up? Are, are there sort of battles about who who owns a particular origami? There, well, we, one must make a distinction between between an idea yeah. and concept and a tangible embodiment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there, there is a little bit of well, certainly there's endless internet discussions of the topic, as you know, there's because anything on the internet will get people fired up, right? Um, and there's a little bit of conflict. There's two ways of protecting an object like that. Um, you, to, if you want to protect the sort of the idea or concept you kind of have to go the patent route. And almost no one does because patents are really, really expensive. But once it's rendered as an intangible form, it uh, it's protected by copyright. And in the U.S., it's anything is automatically protected by copyright once it's rendered in tangible form. Um, and so that's what, there already is this body of, of law, that which I'm not remotely an expert in, <laughs> but a body of law that, that governs that sort of thing. There's also questions of fair use and derivative works, which I'm remo- totally unqualified to comment on, that, but, but that play into it. What we see generally in the origami world, though, is that um, most of the origami world proceeds not on the basis of, of law, but on the basis of etiquette, which is... And and the principle that's more or less captured is if if you can recognize the other artist's work in what you do, then you, you kind of need to get permission or talk to them about about using it. The unicorn from Blade Runner was designed by an American artist named Pat Crawford. It was created for the movie by a British origami artist named Mick Guy. And uh, I don't know the fellow that you're talking about on the Internet, but one would hope if he's selling copies of Pat Crawford's unicorn – that that he would have gotten permission from her to do so. It's a jungle out there. You don't you don't necessarily know that. All right, but one would hope, and that does sound a very, like a very lovely and uh, elegant way to behave. Anyway, to at least acknowledge where things come from. Um, would that the world always worked that way? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Robert J. Lang in a little while. You'll meet uh, Eric Demain too, also doing some pretty amazing Robert J. Lang influenced stuff with origami. So paper plane and flat, no blade cuts or find the gaps just the pressure of finger knuckle nails make me into something new to fail All right, we're back. We're talking about origami, but not your grandmother's origami. It's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, with us right now is Robert J. Lang, the author of many books about origami, one of the world's leading masters of the art and of its mathematics. He's joining us from KQED in San Francisco. Um, there, I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, before we connect. We get you and Eric uh, talking back and forth to one another um, to talk a little bit more about the way the origami aesthetic kind of bleeds into other places. Um, and, and uh, for example, example, the minute we started talking about this show, I started thinking about Frank Gehry because it seemed to, to me, I mean, I don't really know anything about this, but it seemed to me that it, it almost has to be the case that uh, his architecture is origami influenced. And then I got uh, on the internet and started looking around and there's even a term origami texture, <laughs> which I guess kind of <laughs> refers to architecture that is in some way informed by origami. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, Frank Gehry designs a lot of his structures making 
paper models. And um, I mean, certainly you also use much more sophisticated tools than that. But but a lot of things start with paper models, even the curved shapes. And when you're making curved folds from origami, you or from paper, you get a particular family of shapes called developable surfaces that are different and much narrower than if you were, for example, modeling, molding your curves out of clay. Um, and so simply by that choice of starting materials, he's self-selecting to the same curved surfaces that we'd find in curved origami. Yeah, I, I had even heard uh, from somebody, I think somebody who had been a prospective client, that, that he has some kind of machine even that can take a picture of a three-dimensional folded paper model and, and then begin to develop the, the, um, the plans from that. In other words, basically generate those kinds of plans. And I was really intrigued. Uh, I connected that mentally. And once again, I don't really know what I'm talking about here, but I connected that mentally in the documentary between the folds. There's a whole bunch of origami artists, a whole separate school who really are kind of crumplers, right? They don't really work with straight folds. They they do something much more chaotic looking, which also seemed Gary-like to me. Yeah, the uh, the French school of of crumpling has is it's I think it's one of the most there are some people who say that's not origami and to me I say that's the most original thing in origami I've seen in a hundred years because what they're they they are doing folding um, if you look closely at the surface it's a network of little tiny folds but by making this incredibly dense network of folds they create surfaces that are very unlike anything you might find in the rest of origami, but are very much like what you find in a lot of nature. And so they've, they've created some amazing natural subjects and purely abstract ones that, that have these wild, doubly curved surfaces that you would never see in an ordinary origami shape. Um, one of the things that uh, popped out in the in the documentary is that there seem to be, and you seem to be involved in them, kind of origami slams almost, uh, the, the origami equivalent of a poetry slam, where, where particularly it seems like young people bring in their origami and kind of set them up aesthetically against other people's. Yeah, I don't think it's as formal as that. There are mm. origami exhibitions uh, typically associated with every origami convention, and there's conventions all over the world. There'll be an exhibition, and everyone who comes to the convention kind of brings their latest and greatest, and so they set things up at, at the exhibition. So on the surface, it's just an exhibition of origami. Mm. Nevertheless, when you come to these things, you know, you're kind of looking at what other artists are doing and and, and and sort of measuring what you've done against other people and also looking for ideas you know it's like oh this is this is a really beautiful effect this person has achieved can i now can i figure out a way of, of using that so there is that sort of undercurrent going on but uh, i don't think it's as formal as you know, as as a challenge or iron chef of origami <laughs> might be, but you know, yeah, they do push each other and try to top each other anyway. If one person can do something with six legs, then somebody else does it with eight legs Absolutely. and claws or something like that. Um, and, you know, one of the other places, and I don't even know whether you've been watching this or not, but one of the other places that origami has surfaced lately, and it's the second time this week we've done a show with a gigantic House of Cards tie-in. Uh, but origami has sort of emerged in in House of Cards. I think especially in the first season, as this theme. Uh, and one of the first things that you, I think the first time you see it, uh, the character played by by uh, Robin Wright is walking down the street, and I think she gives a $20 bill to what appears to be a homeless man. And the next time she sees him, he hands her back the $20 bill, but it's been folded into the shape of an animal. And I, first of all, I wondered, 
whether that's based on anything. First of all, are, are there people who do a lot of origami with money? Are there people who do it kind of as a street art? Uh, yes, to both. Mm. Um, there's there's a German folder named Stefan Weber who makes his living doing street origami. And uh, there's a street performance right here in San Francisco named Jeremy Schaefer who does a, a whole performance but works origami and the folding of things into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done trade shows where the assignment was to essentially do origami on demand for people. So someone would come up and say, well, can you make a so-and-so? And, in you know, hopefully about five or ten minutes, come up with a reasonable enough representation of it. So that definitely happens. And there's a whole genre of origami devoted to folding currency. Um, so, yeah, and, and if, if, you, if you would uh, use your favorite search engine for, on the Internet, look for origami currency, you'll find some incredible examples by a Hawaiian artist named Juan Park. Um, so, yes, the, there, there's background for all of this in the, uh, in, in the, sto- in the uh, House of Cards episode. And, and has the origami community picked up on this whole thing going on in House of Cards? I think I've seen some mentions of it on some mailing lists, mm-hmm. but it, but it doesn't seem like a. But I haven't seen a lot of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I'll just give you my own little pathetic psychological aesthetic take on it. it the character played by Robin Wright is elegant, controlled, beautiful, um, and, and ultimately maybe more fragile than she first appears. And and so the fact that she's the one. I mean, after she gets this uh, this this um, money origami from the street guy, she starts doing origami. She does it for some kids that she's kind of babysitting, and then ultimately is visiting this uh, lover who's an artist, and she produces this thing that that's part origami. And it it does seem as though there is, although you can do anything with origami, there are certain characteristics to it, and, and some of those I think are there. That idea of e- elegance and discipline and control, but but also this kind of fragile beauty uh, to origami. You might think that. I couldn't possibly comment. All right. Yes. It's, 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 <laughs> it's too big a question. One of the um, things that – one of the comparisons you make a lot, um, you analogize a lot between origami and music. Um, you, you talked earlier in our conversation already uh, about the sort of notion uh, of etudes, uh, of the idea that, that music is – um, a concept uh, and then a performed form, um, just as origami is. But there's more to it than that, right? I mean, the, the uh, another commonality is the way to which the way in which they are um, understood and, and to a certain degree governed by mathematics. Yeah, the mathematics describes origami in in retrospect surprisingly well. Well, in fact. Um, it's it's sort of a surprise that mathematics describes the universe so <laughs> accurately because mathematics is this is this pure abstract logical system but there are fundamental laws of origami that kind of describe what you can and can't do you can put those laws into mathematical language and the beauty of that is once you have them in mathematical language, you can use the tools of math, the tools of, of computer science to sort of exercise those laws and discover new things or discover how to build new objects that one wouldn't have been able to create relying solely on intuition. We're talking to Robert J. Lang. Uh, he is one of the masters uh, of origami. In just a minute, we're going to take a break and come back and talk uh, also to, to Eric Demain, who's one of the people uh, taking a lot of these ideas and seeing how far they can go in science 
in, in, in medicine, too. Um, Robert J. Lang, you know, you, at the beginning of the show, we said, or you said, there aren't so much rules as there are customs. Um, and, and obviously, any rule or custom uh, that's being grappled with by creative people, that's an invitation to break it or play with it or do something new with it. Um, is it uh, one, of, one of the basic ideas of origami is it's paper. Um, is it always paper? I, thought, I think I saw somewhere in my, my copious notes prepared by Kion Wolf something about hotel towels. I mean, is there origami that does not actually involve paper? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's origami from hotel towels. There's, there's origami from cloth, leather, plastic. Um, I, in a project I'm working on with a professor at Brigham Young University, we're making origami from, from wood. And... Um, Especially when we start finding, getting into the scientific and engineering applications of origami, it's pretty rare that those applications are actually going to use paper as their material. So they they will use other materials, wood, plastic, polymer, metal, and the like. And people who are doing research now on the boundary between origami and engineering are developing techniques to to fabricate. Uh, these origami shapes from other materials and tech- and the mathematical techniques to model and describe what it's like to fold from other materials. Um, this is all just totally amazing, but we're about to amaze you even more. Um, we've taken you uh, two-thirds of the way now. We're uh, going to take you down the home stretch after this break, and we are going to talk about the way this now crosses over uh, into technology, into manufacturing, into medicine, into science, into space. We'll be back after this. Start with the folding of the sharp edges in Smoothing the paper in and again Curving the straight lines and molding the sides Until there's a circle with nothing to Now I'm going to make a vulture wearing an Armani suit. Ow, paper cut. Ah, oh, it's really bad. Uh, I need a tourniquet. Let me just wind this thing around and around. Okay, there. Stop the bleeding. Kion, have you seen my origami snake? The one I spent all day yesterday making? Your snake? No, uh, but the cleaning crew came through here a little while ago. Maybe they... whatever. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with help from our intern, Anna Novak. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ralph Macchio. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in the introduction. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making tiny little origami out of hanging chads, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. After I wrote those credits, I realized that the part of Bill Curry should have been, should have been played by Ben Folds, uh, but it just it had eluded me at the time. <laughs> All right. We're talking uh, about origami. We're talking to Robert J. Lang. We're going to add uh, to uh, the conversation Eric Domain, uh, someone who was influenced and inspired by Robert J. Lang. He's a professor of computer science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a recipient of a, Mar- a MacArthur Fellowship. Uh, I think he's the youngest such professor and the youngest uh, of many things. Uh, he's come <laughs> kind of generationally and chronologically ahead of the curve. Uh, his MacArthur Fellowship is, uh, involves computational geometry. Oh, I can't even pronounce it. Never mind. Uh, we'll, we'll actually just sort of dive into it. Eric Domain, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. So we've, we've talked now for uh, 30 or 40 minutes uh, about what origami is and what it is aesthetically. One of the things that both you and Robert J. Lang have done, though, is to think about where else uh, origami 
could go? Could there be, um, for example, medical applications? And uh, in, the, in the documentary Between the Folds, you have a, a fascinating uh, discourse about DNA, about proteins, right? About the, right. the, the way I'll, I'll let you t- take up the, the conversation from there and, and explain this. Yeah, so uh, proteins are the fundamental building block of life. All living things that we know in our current world are made up of lots of little proteins running around making life happen. And uh, yet we don't really understand how they fold. Uh, Proteins are kind of like one-dimensional pieces of paper. And so we've been trying to take our understanding of the mathematics of how paper folds and adapt it to how proteins might fold. And one of the things that you say is that it's possible, or or maybe even, as far as you're concerned, true, that certain diseases are essentially misfoldings of proteins. Do I have that right? Yeah, I'm not an expert per se on that, but uh, there are definitely a bunch of diseases that at least seem correlated. We don't know, you know, which way the causation happens to proteins folding into their mirror image or just into the wrong thing. So if we could better understand how proteins fold, maybe, and under what conditions they fold properly, maybe we could prevent that from happening and and cure those diseases. Um, But even more than that, if we, I mean, we can also make our own proteins by making custom DNA and and feeding it to our cells. So we could imagine designing new proteins that actually do the work we want to do, like run around our body and cure ourselves of certain diseases. Um, Robert J. Lang, another um, sort of stumbling block or another um, challenge uh, has been figuring out how to get certain big things on relatively small space vehicles. Space vehicles seem to have kind of a a standard width, whether it's a space shuttle or some other kind of transport rocket. Uh, There's a width or a diameter to which things have to conform. Um, So you've done some work, I think, involving satellite lenses. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, I worked on a project for Livermore Lab to develop. It was a telescope lens, so it would go up in a satellite. And then more recently um, with JPL on a, a solar array, but that both unfold sort of according to this principle. And this idea of making big flat things in space that have to fit into rockets was pioneered by a Japanese engineer named Koryo Miura, who uh, invented one of the now one of the the iconic unfolding structures that even today is being studied by many many different groups uh, for consideration or variation in satellite deployable structures. Um, Eric Demain, it seems as though part of the conversation we're about to have um, involves the notion that origami can be used. Uh, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm such a newcomer to this, and you guys know. Uh, I know X and you guys know a thousand X. So feel free to talk back and forth and set me straight and stuff like that. But uh, it seemed as though one of the things that you were saying is that that origami can be used, folding can be used to create almost any shape, right? Or or, or a- any knowable, understandable shape. Is is that fair? Yeah, uh, that we're yeah assembling a collection of algorithms to basically take in any shape you want to make and fold it out of one sheet of paper. And Eric is a little too modest to mention this, so I will, that he and his coworkers actually proved these results for various classes of shapes, that you can make any silhouette, you can make any black and white pattern. And uh, working, I think, with a, a Japanese professor of architecture named Tomohiro Tachi, you can make any 3D surface as well. I mean, isn't it the case, Eric, that you and your father made a geometric shape that people were not entirely sure existed anywhere except in theory? 
Uh, yeah, this is the hyperbolic paraboloid, so-called. It's a very simple model. You take a square piece of paper and fold concentric squares into it. It's originally folded in the Bauhaus in the late 20s, actually. Uh, and for a long time, people couldn't figure out what was going on, and we proved uh, about five years ago that, in fact, it doesn't exist, and that's why we couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> Mathematically, even though we've made, made thousands of them, uh, they're impossible to actually make. <laughs> All right. I'm wrapping my mind around that. but um, It's one of these weird situations where something exists in real life but doesn't exist mathematically. The reverse is often true, that there are mathematical things that we haven't yet created in, in the real world. But you can also have things that exist in the real world because of uh, imperfections in the real world. Paper can cheat a little bit. You know, if you try to do it perfectly mathematically, you just can't. But watching what you guys do and watching the shapes, watching what the artists were doing in the documentary, and then watching what you guys do—I mean, I'm a moron. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not the kind of person to whom brilliant ideas come. But it just—and I see that as an example of how intuitive a lot of this stuff is. The more that I watched it, I somehow this whole idea of solar energy catchers started popping into my mind. I thought, wow, basically that's you know when you're trying to c- capture solar energy uh, for for other kinds of use. Um, I would imagine, anyway, sort of uh, aligning it, trapping it, having the right shapes and planes and services, and possibly services that can move would be incredibly useful. So how far away uh, am I from from what the research is? Either one of you can answer that one. Well, I've crossed paths with both uh, research scientists and companies who have, uh, let's just say, have observed that uh, coincidence (laughs) between flat movable surfaces in, in origami and the needs for flat or curved movable surfaces in solar. And so there, there's definitely projects pursuing that. And so, and Eric, it seems with solar energy too, you'd like something that's pretty malleable on short-term notice, right? Because clouds come in and things like that. And I mean, ideally, you'd want to optimize your solar catching ability even for pretty short-term weather patterns. And Once again, I'm assuming everything you're saying right now about origami indicates that folding is a way to do this. I think so, yeah. Um, we definitely like the idea of using folding to make material do whatever you want. Um, I think in the solar context, it's particularly exciting to try to make uh, parabolic solar catchers and, and uh, make an oven to heat water because that's a particularly efficient way to convert solar energy into electricity, as I understand it, or energy that we can use more directly. And uh that's a nice application because you could imagine your portable, uh, you know, nicely folded up flat piece of paper, which you then conform into this parabolic shape and, uh, I don't know, cook your, cook your lunch <laughs> wherever you need to go. <laughs> Well, we got to talk robots here, and so we're we're about to get into an area where, when I was first trying to wrap my tiny little mind around it, I, I thought this is the kind of thing that you might see in a comic book, like something, some super being or something would would do this. But uh, in fact, it looks as though it'll actually happen here on Earth uh, if it's not happening already. So, um, so Eric Demain, tell us a little bit about this. In other words, one one possible idea is to have a flat sheet of something that because of everything that we're talking about and, and with the addition of of at least 
something that we call robotics, uh, this flat sheet of material could shape itself when being given a signal into lots of different shapes, depending on what shape you told it to and and, and maybe a little bit of programming to go along with it. But, okay, so that's my uh, idiot's version of it. Explain it better to people. <laughs> yeah, so this is sort of the vision of programmable matter, that we have one sheet of flat material that can fold itself into ideally arbitrary origami. Just say, oh, uh, I need a, a chair to sit down on. Please fold into a chair. Uh, and then later you can reuse the same material to uh, be ambitious, fold into a bicycle and use it as a bicycle or, or something like that. Um, and what we've built are relatively simple prototypes, uh, little little sheets of material that have uh, creases in them, and you can turn on uh, some of those creases by, turn, by uh, sending an electrical signal. The electrical signal gets turned into heat um, in uh, at particular places uh, with something called shape memory alloy, which, when heated, fold into a different state. So yeah. they're essentially like little uh, pieces of string pulling the creases shut. And so you can get origami without any origamist involved, or directly physically manipulating the paper. It just folds all by itself. And this kind of, um, when I was reading about this, it linked pretty well to something that I think you say in the documentary. You you fold a piece of paper and you say, now I've changed the memory uh, of this sheet of paper. I've actually right. altered its memory. So is there a straight line that goes from that to this robotics thing that you're talking about? Uh, well, so there are two different ways you might try to do self-folding. One is to permanently uh, deform the sheet so that once it's in its folded state, it doesn't unfold. Uh, which you you may want to do, say you just want to uh, do 3D manufacturing. Um, and the more ambitious goal is to do it reversibly, so it, it stays in that folded state for as long as you want it, but then you can un, you can change that, undo the folds, and then put in some different folds and reuse that material. That's harder to do, but uh, that's that's usually our goal. All right. Just promise that uh, Eric Domain sheets will not enslave us someday. Um, <laughs> well, it's part of my master plan to take over the world. Well, that's the problem. I was going to say, if if Eric is doing it, I <laughs> he may well accomplish that. <laughs> well, then, uh, then actually, then somebody has to will have to come back in time and kill you, so that doesn't happen in the future. And you know, I've seen that movie. Um, so, Robert J. Lang, you know, we're we're talking about this, and and you know, just to sort of go back to the earliest stirrings of our conversation, it, it seems as though art and science are talking to one another in a pretty um, unusual dance, you know, that the, 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 they're close-knit here, that art is watching science and science is watching art. I mean, is there kind of an interesting blurring of those boundaries a little bit with origami? There definitely is an interesting blurring, and and it's now, uh, it, it, it's officially sanctioned. Starting about two years ago, our National Science Foundation began funding research programs in engineering groups all over the country to develop engineering applications of folding, of origami. And one of their stipulations was that each team should have artists involved to just as a way of sort of exploring this cross-fertilization of ideas, taking, and in the case of origami, you have folded structures that already exist in the art world of origami, but when the artist sits down 
down with the engineer, they both can look at it and realize there's an application for this or that folded structure in the, the, the DNA folding or protein folding that Eric talked about. Um, people are making medical devices, uh, self-folding materials, and or, or, or just plain manufacturing technologies to lower the cost of manufacturing of objects. As far as I know, this is the first time the National Science Foundation has required artists involved in a science project. And it's it's really exciting to see that because I think it's a really powerful way of working. You get as Robert said, a lot of inspiration from uh, different artistic origami to design new types of applications, engineering, and, and mathematical origami. And there's a really nice back and forth between the, the two sides. Um, and I know, you know, we've talked sort of about pretty um, highly sophisticated uh, versions of this, but um, are there people, I know that you, you've both worked, I think, on, on using origami or folding uh, to improve airbags. Are, are there now cars that have airbags that, that represent the kind of design thinking, the origami influence thinking that you've done? Probably, yeah, one of us but, but, ahead, I, but I need to explain. Yeah, I need to kind of explain the the multiple levels of of indirection in that process. The the origami work, which is work that I've done, and also that's uh, being they're, they're bringing in algorithmic ideas that Eric and and his collaborators have also done on how you design the how you figure out the the fold patterns when you computationally model an airbag. So the input from the origami community was into the idea of how do you computationally model folding an airbag. Now, that led to tool, computational tools for modeling and simulation and so forth. Airbag engineers, totally separate from the origami world, then use those tools to design airbags, and then those airbags get manufactured and go into cars. So I think it's, it's plausible that we can follow the thread of influence from the origami structures all the way through, but there's a couple layers before it gets to the airbag in the car you are driving around. All right. Well, Eric Demain, thank you so much for joining us today. Robert J. Lang, also, thanks for joining us. Eric Eric Demain, professor of computer science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, you know it as MIT, and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. Robert J. Lang, the author of many books uh, about origami, one of the world's leading masters of the art and the math and science behind it. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Twit, do you fold your origami cream? Does it sing in your heart? Does it fly in your brain? Well, the rivers are different, but the water is the same. Which way do you fold your origami cream? Which way? 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 I'm Kion Wolf. Hey, Greg, I thought that the World Championships of Origami was on TV, but I can't find what channel it's on. Do you know? Yeah, it's on pay-per-view. Ugh.